people that live outside of this area, maybe more in the interior of the U.S., they don't know the abuses uh, that we endure from Border Patrol just every day in our community, these warrantless searches and stops with no probable cause. But I consider it to be un-American. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. I'm Melissa Del Bosque, investigative journalist and co-founder of the Independent Border Chronicle. Today's episode is part two of an in-depth interview with Santa Cruz County Sheriff David Hathaway. In our last episode, the sheriff had a lot to say about federal drug enforcement, and he would know he was with the DEA for years and part of the investigation that uncovered the CIA's involvement in the murder of fellow DEA agent Kiki Camarena. If you missed this episode, We've linked to it in the show notes for you, so make sure you go back and give it a listen. Here's the sheriff with more about life on the border. The border is often portrayed in the media as this place of conflict, uh, you know, sort of war zone. It's this dangerous place when it's actually just a crossroads for these bigger issues like drug demand and drug trafficking. Um, asylum seekers and so forth. And how do you address just sort of misinformation and and this larger narrative of, of, you know, your community or any border community being this really horrible, dangerous place? Yeah, man, that just bugs me to no end. And it's just all hype. Um, Fortunately, at the national level media, I get a lot of requests for interviews. They're trying to perpetuate this border hype, border crisis, that it's so scary, that it's a war zone. And it's actually the opposite is true. Our crime statistics here are lower. It's safer than communities like Tucson or Phoenix. It's lower than the average for the state of Arizona. Like I say, I was born here and grew up here. My wife and I, we take, we live along the border. We take walks along the border every night and it's peaceful and safe. There was a Gallup, uh, a Gallup uh, survey, Gallup poll survey done a few years ago of residents of border communities, not the people outside of the border communities regarding their image of the border, but people actually live, live in border communities. And I think they did 26,000 people in the survey. And they, they also, yeah, we feel very safe in our border communities. But down here, unfortunately, certain politicians take advantage of the hype and they try to push things that don't make sense. Like, for example, I've had an ongoing battle with the governor. Well, he just recently is he's the outgoing governor. Him trying to capitalize on this this fear-mongering, this crisis image of the border. And he knows that he has a large voter population. Arizona has a snowbird community. They have a lot of retired individuals from other states that don't really know the truth about the border. They don't come down here and experience. We have retirement communities uh, like Sun City and Green Valley and in uh, Yuma County. And it's unfortunately easy to scare these people, people that come in from other states, older people, and just to tell them about, oh, the border's out of control and all these people are going to come kill you. Like Trump would say, they're all uh, murderers and rapists and drug dealers. So that message, unfortunately, resonates with a lot of people who've never actually experienced the truth. So if I could just tick off some of the things that I've had in my ongoing battle with Ducey, like initially, he, he declared an emergency on the border. And he obligated $25 million of taxpayer money to send troops to the border, National Guard troops. Uh, Now, 
there was not a parallel declaration of an emergency by the federal government, so this was never going to get reimbursed. If there's a parallel declaration like a flood, a hurricane, an earthquake, where the governor and the federal government declares an emergency, then that reimburse that that expenditure of state funds will get reimbursed by the federal government to deal with a hurricane like Katrina or something like that. So he just unilaterally decided he's going to obligate $25 million for this program to send troops to the border. There's four border counties, so there's four border sheriffs. And I immediately told him no. Um, Ducey's office, the head of the National Guard, uh, a major general, the head of the National Guard for Arizona, called me and said, Sheriff, how many do you want in your border? How many soldiers? I told him, I don't want any. And, and, and first of all, there's a law in the U.S. called Posse Comitatus that says that the military cannot be used as a domestic police force in the U.S. for good reason. So they needed to get a sponsoring agency. Myself, as the chief law enforcement officer for Santa Cruz County, I had to sponsor these individuals to come to the county. Now, this was a very unpopular idea here for our merchants on the border. You know, they didn't want this to look like a war zone like East Berlin. Um, and it just perpetuated that narrative that it is a war zone if we have troops running, roaming the streets, you know, machine guns, you know, uh, wearing their uniforms and whatnot. So I said no. And then, so that was the beginning of my war with Ducey. And after that, him and Governor Abbott from Texas sent letters to all of the other states, all 48 contiguous states, um, saying, Send your law enforcement officers from your state to the border and your National Guard to the border. So both Governor Abbott in Texas and Governor Ducey in Arizona sent these letters out. And um, at last count, 11 states responded, like uh, I think eight counties in Florida said they were going to send deputy sheriffs and they were going to send state police from uh, different states and, and deputy sheriffs from different states. Well, I immediately made a big stink in the newspaper and I went to my county board of supervisors and I spoke to them, made a speeches saying, look, um, we don't want this. I'm not going to certify these people to be deputized to work in, in my county. There's officer safety issues. They operate on different frequencies. They have different uniforms. We don't know who they are. They don't know the terrain. They don't know, you know, uh, they don't know who they're dealing with. They may, you know, go, go up and like shoot a rancher or something like that. So I said, no, um, I'm not going to deputize them to come into the state. And another point I made is they're not certified police officers in the state of Arizona. There's like a 22 week academy that you have to go through to be a peace officer, certified as a peace officer in Arizona. So I said, no, I'm not going to allow any of them here. So Ducey comes back and does an executive order to counter my complaint, and you can see it on his on the website of executive orders from Governor Ducey, where he said he would give blanket peace officer certification to any officer from another state that came into Arizona for the purpose of doing dealing with his crisis on the border. Uh, so, um, and since I said I wouldn't allow those people to come in. So he just said, they're certified automatically. I'm just going to do an executive order. They don't have to go through any police training in Arizona. They're just automatically certified. And then to get around the thing that, that I said I wouldn't sponsor them in my county, he put them under a thing called the uh, Border Strike Force, which is a thing run by the state police. Now, Ducey runs the state police, the Arizona State Police. So he said any of these eight uh, officers coming from other states would be put under the uh, the Arizona State Police Border Strike Force. So instead of them being under the sheriffs, they would be under the state police. Now, I still don't think of any have come to my county. 
I haven't had any word of any of them coming here, and I have our deputies looking to make sure we don't have other people from out of state coming in to try to, you know, go to the border and I don't know what they think they're going to do. Get it, you know, get out, get out guns and start, you know, shooting Mexicans or something like that. Because, you know, Border Patrol has already done plenty of that. We had a woman like about nine months ago just shot in the head here in, in Nogales, Arizona. Uh, she wasn't doing anything illegal. We had a 16-year-old boy that was shot 10 times through the fence in Mexico by, by a Border Patrol agent, shot 10 times by, uh, with an M4 carbine. And there's a lot of other examples of them, you know, shooting at people or friendly fire, shooting at themselves. And they're kind of a law amongst, uh, unto themselves. I'm never invited to investigate those things. They always cordon off the area and bring in the Office of Inspector General, the FBI, the, their the OPR, Office of Professional Responsibility, and the feds wind up investigating themselves. And there's not too much I can do about it because in my county, we have the biggest border patrol station in the U.S. in Nogales and the third biggest border patrol station in the U.S. in the little town of Sonoida, which is also in my county. We have a very big DEA office and uh, we have the largest ports of entry of all the four counties in Arizona, the largest ports of entry in Mexico. So there's a whole lot of what's called CBPOFO officers, Office of Field Operations. Those are the guys in the blue uniforms that work at the ports of entry. So the federal officers here outnumber 30 to 1, the local officers. For every one local officers, there's 30 federal officers. So it's kind of, um, it kind of I'm being like a little one-man army fighting all this border hysteria. And, you know, I'm seriously outnumbered. Um, and I don't know if you'd like to get into later some of the other battles I've had, like the the blimp, the spy blimp that I complained about that continuously, and they finally took it down a couple of weeks ago. And then Ducey's border uh, shipping container wall is another thing I, I fought with, and we eventually won that battle too. And so they're they're taking that down. You're referring to a CBP Customs and Border Protection surveillance blimp uh, aerostat. That was put up over Nogales, I, I think, without notifying anybody. And these are up and down the border. Um, where I worked in Texas, there are, are quite a few. And do you know how far they can see um, into several miles, right? Well, first of all, it was purely a video surveillance platform. And it was anchored a mile and a half north of the border, right over three residential neighborhoods in the United States, the Royal Road neighborhood, the Rancho Grande neighborhood, the Nogalitos neighborhood. And there I was familiar with other ones. There was there's one that's a radar platform um, in Cochise County, the county to the east of me. It's over a military base called Fort Huachuca. So that one was for the purpose of monitoring low-flying aircraft, just uh, just a, later, a radar platform. There's a lot of mountains in Arizona to try to see a radar image of low-flying aircraft that would be coming in over the San Rafael Valley or other parts of Cochise and Santa Cruz County. But this one here, it was purely a video surveillance platform. And it was, uh, you know, right over these residential neighborhoods, uh, anchored quite a ways from the border. Now, I was never told that it was going to go up. I was never briefed on it, on its capabilities. I knew it was video. I was never offered the, uh, the, uh, the, the video surveillance footage of like what they're looking at. And my first thing that I told Border Patrol is like, well, are we going to also get the footage of all the Border Patrol atrocities every time you guys shoot at people? Am I going to get that so I can review that for potential prosecution? So 
I, I made a lot of complaints out of it about it. And we're sitting during this interview right here in my office, in the sheriff's office, and you could see it right out the window of my office, this window right next to it. You could see it anchored right there, you know, and potentially looking in the window of my office. And, you know, and the local residents, there's a good, if you if you go to YouTube and just look at Spy Blimp, Sheriff Hathaway, you just search those words, Spy Blimp, Sheriff Hathaway, you'll see different interviews I did. One was done by our uh, Arizona Public Media, and they interviewed residents in that area complaining about this thing like they were afraid. It was anchored right outside their window, and the woman was saying she would take a shower, and now she was afraid to take a shower on that side of the house because she could see the red light from that blimp, and she was afraid to walk on that side of her house, you know, not knowing what kind of tracking or spying or what they're what they're doing with the inf information. And I made a big stink about how this is like the growing police state and surveillance state in the U.S. and that, you know, civil liberties groups should be should be upset about this, this growing surveillance state and police state. And I'm kind of surprised that people on maybe say more on the right, politically speaking, I'm surprised that they're not concerned about this encroachment on on, on the spying on this police state, you know, like starting to do some of the things that you would see with the Stasi in East Germany, KGB, you know, Gestapo, this kind of, you know, this thing that's encroaching on our personal freedoms, you know, individual liberties, civil rights, those type of things. I'm kind of surprised there's been not more of an outpouring, you know, more complaints about that from the right. And we also have surveillance drones, predator drones, the same type they use in the Middle East wars, you know, flying over at night. Um, other surveillance towers that are multiple miles from the border that are vi video surveillance towers, you know, ground monitors, ground sensors, and all, all kinds of things like, um, you know, uh, another thing is um, just the, the this growing tendency towards photographing everything you do. There's like northbound and southbound cameras on the interstate that goes through my county and at the border. And, you know, uh, when I was a kid, you grew up, you didn't need any documents as a U.S. citizen to come back to the U.S. You just declared your citizenship and you walked back in. It's your country. They can't keep you off. And now you have to have a passport to come back into your own country, the equivalent of a national ID card. And my poor wife, she's like 95 pounds, five feet, two inches. And every time we go to Mexico, there's this thing that it does this image analysis software on, you know, you give them your passport. They swipe it, and then they take a picture of you. And then it does digital photo analysis. And some one time, for some reason, when she had her picture for the passport, she was wearing her contacts. And, you know, she comes in, she's wearing her glasses, and maybe her hair was done different. But the image anal analysis software thought it detected an anomaly in my the picture of my wife. They take a picture of you every time you come across now compared to the the uh, the image on the passport. So they sent her into secondary, held her for half an hour there, interrogated, because the computer said, there's nothing wrong with her documents, the computer said, look look further at this person to, to check their identity. So once that got into the system, um, now there's this little red flag with my wife every time she goes to the border and she gets all scared, you know, <laughs> coming across, that she goes and stands in line, they take her picture and it pops up every time, like, because it was in there once. It's kind of like when you get on the no-fly list. You don't know why you're on the no-fly list, but there's no way to get yourself off. So this little red flag note pops up into the computer to look further because it detects that there was a prior occasion when the computer sensed to look further. <laughs> but it was all based on this image analysis software. So sorry for digressing on that, but just as I start thinking about this stuff, I'll remember more 
little things that are so different than when I grow up that even American citizens are abused and tracked. And even on my own ranch land, I'll have Border Patrol come up and tell me, you know, pull guns on me and tell me you shouldn't be here. And I'll say, no, this has been in my family since the 1800s. I own this land. And, you know, they don't know. Most of them are recruited from back east. They're briefed on all the border hype. They come out here with this very militaristic attitude. And I'm sure you've heard about the 100-mile constitution-free zone. So, you know, they say through various Supreme Court cases that the Border Patrol has the right to search you without probable cause and interrogate you if you're within 100 miles of the international border. So I live my whole life within that zone, as do two-thirds of the population of the U.S. Of the 340 million people in the U.S., you know, two-thirds of them live within 100 miles of the international border, Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle, you know, uh, Miami, New York. <laughs> and they don't know that federal case law has now given the federal officials the authority to search you, pull you over, interrogate you with no probable cause. And I deal with this all the time here. So, I, you know, people that live outside of this area, maybe more in the interior of the U.S., they don't know the abuses uh, that we endure from Border Patrol just every day in our community, these warrantless searches and stops with no probable cause. But I consider it to be un-American. Uh, and I, like I say, I'm surprised that people on the right aren't starting to tune in on this about how, man, this is maybe a, you know, an indicator of things to come that you're losing your freedoms in this country. Yeah, I'm. I'm so glad that you you uh, spoke on that because that's something that Todd and I at the Border Chronicle have been writing about for years about the Constitution Free Zone and and just all of these increasing restrictions on people who live at the border, which I think the rest of the country doesn't understand. But then the most mind blowing thing is, like you said, uh, millions and millions and millions of people live in this zone. It's it's not just you know little border towns. It's uh, you know, it's San Diego, it's, it's uh, you know, the entire perimeter of the United States. So it's actually a, a big deal that we should all be concerned about as, as Americans. Yeah. Um, I want to segue a little into the shipping container wall, which was built um, in the um, neighboring county of Cochise County, and it was heading your way. Um, Governor Ducey was going to build 10 miles of a double stacked shipping container wall right on the border because he said that there was an invasion and there was this crisis and that these shipping container walls needed to be built. Uh, they're now removing it and it's going to cost, I think, about $200 million putting it up and removing it and, and these uh, little walls that he did in Yuma. Uh, you went out there, actually, to the protest site because local residents and environmental groups got together and basically shut down the construction in the Coronado National Forest, which was on federally, you know, protected land um, run by the Forest Service, who was um, nowhere in sight um, to stop the construction. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that's crazy how that all developed. Initially, they wanted to do it here. So they brought all these shipping containers to the National Guard Armory here in Nogales, Arizona, in my county, stacked up hundreds of them. And then, um, and then the word got out, oh, Governor Ducey is going to do this shipping container wall. And they seriously overpaid for each container. They paid, um, I think, about $8,800 for the containers 
And there were a the, lot of rusty, old, beat-up ones. And you can get pristine, newer containers for like $4,500. But anyway, that's, that's another story. So I started complaining immediately to the media, like, we don't want this here. We don't need this here. And then they were taken out of the area. And they started doing it in Yuma County. So these are 40-foot shipping containers, the kinds that go across the ocean on ships. And you see them on railroad cars. And they were double stacking them and welding them together and putting razor wire on, on top of them. Um, and then there started to be a dispute with the federal government because there's a 60-foot swath of land next to the international boundary that that's known colloquial, colloquially as the Roosevelt Reservation. And this means 60 feet from the border is controlled by the federal government, that area. So that was a different issue in a different county. I didn't deal too much with that. But then the containers started falling over over there. They double stacked on uneven land. They fell over uh, and, you know, it could potentially be a danger. Now, um, they since they had moved them out of my county and they knew I was opposed to it, there was less resistance in Yuma County and Cochise County. So then they shifted to doing this uh, double stacked container wall in Cochise County, but moving towards Santa Cruz County. And when it got approximately six and a half miles from my county, it was moving in the direction of my county in the San Rafael Valley, uh, which is historical ranch lands for my family, by the way. So it was just kind of this ugly eyesore out there. It was moving towards Santa Cruz County. So I started telling the media, I am not going to allow this to happen. This is on federal land because where they were doing it there was national forest land. And the National Forest Service warned uh, Ducey and the state of Arizona, you are violating federal law. You can't just build a structure. And they had these big tracked vehicles called track hose that they were tearing apart the hillsides and trying to level the land because it's kind of rolling hills, level the land so they could stack up these shipping containers. Um, and so the Bureau of Reclamation and the National Forest Service um, and CBP all warned the, these, uh, the, the state of Arizona and these contractors out there, you're violating federal law. You can't just go build a structure on federal land. Like I can't just go build a mobile home on national forest land, just go set something up out there and just, or just go throw a bunch of trash out there either. So I, but surprising to me is the federal government wasn't willing to do anything about it. They were telling Ducey, this is illegal. You're violating federal law. You don't have any permit to do this, but they allowed the construction to continue day after day. So I got on the media and I told the news outlets, the various news networks, look, I'm going to arrest these people for illegal dumping. If this arrives in, in Santa Cruz County, uh, and they put these uh, big shipping containers on public land, on national forest land, I'm going to charge them with Ill illegal dumping on public land. Because, it, but, you know, we would do the same thing now. Like the sheriff's office, there's a lot of public land here, like state land and federal land. If we saw somebody out there that was camping that just dumped a pile of garbage on the land, or they went out there and just threw a bunch of trash you know, out on public land, they would be cited for um, illegal dumping on public land. So I said, this is an, an activity that has no permits. They've been advised by the federal government that it's illegal. So I'm going to cite these uh, contractors with illegal dumping on public land. And the weird thing is there was no government officials of any kind out there. There was the contractors building the container wall and there was private security hired by the state of Arizona. So these are private individuals that are armed uh, hired by the state of Arizona, 
no state police, nobody of any kind, no government officials, just the contractors and these hired private security. So these protesters initially started going up there saying, we want to go see what's going on. No, you can't come in here. Well, this is public land. It's national forest. We're part of the public. We're allowed to be here. And they tried to intimidate the protesters and the protesters who were unarmed, by the way, none of them were armed, just, you know, basically put their lives in danger and went out there anyway and started recording and doing videos of, of, of this activity. Um, and they had like various standoffs with the uh, with the contractors and with the armed security. And I went out there into the neighboring county and stood with the protesters to show solidarity with them. And it got really weird, Melissa. It got almost like the Tiananmen Square type standoff things. It got where the contractors stopped doing things in the day. And they would come in the middle of the night at two or three in the morning um, and start working again, seeing if, you know, because they're getting paid by the amount of containers they put out there. So it was a lucrative contract. They want to get as much money as they can before Ducey leaves office or before the project gets shut down by the Forest Service. So um, it got to where they were trying to work in the middle of the night and the protesters would camp out there and they would run in darkness, run in front of these big tracked vehicles that are tearing apart the hillsides and actually prevented them from the work continuing. And they camped out there 24 hours a day. And I would go out there and give them, you know, offer them moral support. And I kept complaining about it and making a stink in the media about it. And these protesters, they they didn't have as big of a voice as I did. They would do things on social media. But since I'm an elected sheriff, the media would actually talk to me, all the major networks, and they wanted to hear my side of it. And maybe a lot of it was to belittle me or to make fun of me, you know. Um, but... I still, I got the message out there. And finally, before Governor Ducey left office, he backed down on this and agreed to disassemble all these containers because they were illegal. And it was probably going to be liability for the state of Arizona. And at that, <laughs> you're right, at that point when the wall was still being put up, the expenditure was about $95 million of what they invested in these ridiculous container wall, which is just an ugly eyesore, these these rusty things stacked on top of each other out there. Um, but now they've extended the contract to actually have these same contractors get paid to remove them and haul them away from the border. And then I don't know what they're going to ultimately do with them after that. But, you know, it's, it's another little thing that we're, I don't want to take credit for it. The protesters had a lot to do with it, but I helped to amplify the message and we won on that one. So we won on this spy blimp. They eventually took it down after all my complaining. We won on the containers. Those have been taken down after all my complaining. So it kind of just helps to be willing to speak some truth out there. A lot of people see these things as, you know, uh, unjust things that are being done, unwarranted things, expanded police state. Uh, but they just don't say anything about it. So I think it helped for me to actually get the message out. Sheriff Daniels in Cochise County, where the wall was, the shipping container wall was being built, I guess it said in, in the media that he thought it would keep people out. It would keep migrants from coming into the United States. How, I guess, why do sheriffs have such widely varying differences of opinion about well, what's happening. Unfortunately, sheriffs are political creatures. They're elected. And in Cochise County, there's a lot of retired folks. And like, like I said earlier in this interview, it's easy to scare those folks and talk about a border crisis, even though it doesn't exist. And it might be worthwhile for us to get into what I call the, the fuzzy math a little bit about the statistics, about the numbers, you know, and then the whole 
this is where the whole Title 42 thing comes in. And um, the, the, there's a way that you can play with statistics to just kind of portray anything that you want to portray. So this, uh, dur during the COVID era, you know, you had Title 42, uh, which, which basically said, you don't do any of the normal uh, immigration processing to do with visas or asylum or anything like that, which is all contained in Title VIII, United States Code Title VIII. That has everything to do with work visas, student visas, tourist visas, asylum. There's health and safety provisions. So what Title 42 has done, this is part of this fuzzy math type thing that, that's kind of related to your question there. Um, it, re it resulted in... Um, in, in, in just a complete complete shutdown of processing at the border. And this is not just between the ports of entry, but if anyone walked into a port of entry with documents to present those documents for an asylum uh, adjudication or to get a certain category of visa, they were immediately um, deported, expedited deportations to Mexico with no processing. The same happened between the ports of entry. So it's estimated that up to 40% of the crossings now are repeat processings because there's no processing on their, on their documents. So that was one aspect of what I call the fuzzy math, you know, the, uh, the, the statistical, the changes in the statistics of the number of people that are documented by CBP of crossing the border. Another one is for a year and a half, starting with Trump and then continuing with Biden, Biden all the legal visas were invalidated uh, for about a year and a half. So these are people that had legal visas, B1 or B2 visas, you know, to you know, tourist visas and people were working in the US. These were invalidated. There was estimated to be in 2019 about 4 million legal visas held by Mexican citizens. So these are people that worked in the US or they had families in the US. So during the COVID era, let's say they were they were stuck on the south side of the border, those visas were not honored. So they weren't allowed to cross into the U.S. because they were considered non-essential. This is a non-essential purpose. So that put pressure on people, once again, with legal documents to go between the ports of entry instead of through the ports of entry where they weren't allowed. But they had a legal visa, but they'd come between the ports of entry. And then these people were detained, arrested, and they were counted as part of that, that uh, Southwest border apprehension statistic. And there's also a big temp attempt to make this into a Democrat versus Republican issue. But if you look back at the statistics, you look back um, in practically every year in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, there was more than a million apprehensions at the Southwest border. This was during Republican and Democrat administrations. Uh, every year of the Clinton administration, except one during the Reagan administration, Bush administration. And then there was a lull of 14 years after that with no year going over a million. Most years were under half a million. That was all eight years of Obama, the last two years of Bush Jr., all four years of, of Trump. So these things are cyclical. And then records are made, like there was a record of 1.6 million during the Reagan administration and that record was tied again during the Clinton administration, 1.6 million. And then, you know, those records were broke, broken again recently. But once again, a lot of that was to do with the Title 42 and the invalidation of the legal visas in Mexico that put pressure on people to cross between the reports, the ports of entry or to get uh, immediate expedited deportations at the ports of entry or people that cross between uh, the ports of entry. So this is, you know, kind of all part of this fuzzy math type thing. Another thing that Sheriff Daniels has done, um, there's, 
hundreds of game cameras, motion-activated game cameras set up along the border. And this is another type of fuzzy math. And anytime one of those cameras is tripped by, let's say, a jackrabbit or a deer or a cow or the wind blowing the leaves or a moth blowing, going in front of the camera, every time it's triggered, they count that as a statistic. They call it a gotaway or they call it getaways. Like Fox News loves that terminology. And they'll add hundreds of thousands of numbers to the southwest border statistics um, just because of these game cameras that that trigger whenever some there's some sort of motion out there and they count, count them all as a person uh, crossing into the U.S. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell people, well, look, I grew up in this area and Border Patrol agents always told me we don't get everybody that comes across the border. We maybe get one out of every three or one out of every four. So if you're going to add numbers to the statistics nowadays because of this game camera activation, you need to go back to the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and add numbers to all of those statistics. You can't compare apples and oranges. And another thing about statistics, Melissa, is everything's gotten bigger. Let's just look from 1990 till now. The U.S. has increased 90 million people in population. From 1990 until now, Mexico has increased 55 million people. You look 1990 till now, Border Patrol has increased five times from 4,000 agents to 23,000 agents. Actually, per agent, they're making less apprehensions than they did in 1990, 1970s, 1980s. But you, you quintuple the size of a, of a police force and the populations go up in Mexico and in the U.S., well, you're going to get, you know, eventually the, the previous records are going to be broken. Another thing about the fuzzy math, there's no tabulation of people going southbound into Mexico. Like every day I see whole households of furniture, Hispanic people um, going to Mexico and also, you know, gringos from the U.S., expatriating going to Mexico because there's very modern computer-controlled factories in Mexico. They're not sweatshops. So there's a mass exodus of people going into Mexico. There's big gringo communities in Acapulco, Guaymas, you know, Mazatlan, Rocky Point. And, you know, there's no deduction. There's no tabulation of how many people are leaving the U.S. to deduct from the people they say are coming into the U.S. And another interesting statistic the last 12 months that we have census data, data for is the year 2021. And that is the lowest population growth of the United States in the, in the 240 plus year history of the U.S. The lowest population growth, 0.1% for that whole 12 month period. Uh, you know, 0.1%. And that's all sources of population growth, immigration, native born Americans, so we're at the slowest point in history of immigration growth, and yet they talk about this invasion and caravans and that the whole U.S. is being swamped with people coming from other countries. It's just not true. The statistics don't bear it out. And maybe that was an overly complex answer to your question of the difference between me and other border sheriffs like uh, Sheriff Wilmot in Yuma County. Sheriff uh, Daniels in Cochise County, and the other border county is Pima County, and that's Sheriff Chris Nanos, and he is on my side on this issue. He also turned down the uh, the troops for the to, for the border and the militarization of the border. Uh, but hopefully, that long winded explanation gives you a little bit of what the differences are. It's largely political. If you have a population of voters that's easy to scare, like retired folks from other states and you continually hop, harp on a border crisis. They may never experience it, but that message re resonates with them. And they kind of, it's kind of a fear vote, you know, like they, you scare them 
and then they vote for the the more militarization of the border. Yeah, I feel like as as political rhetoric and politics has become more polarized in the country, so has the narrative around the border, much to the detriment of border communities, right, who live here and just want to see, like, you know, be able to go back and forth without being hassled, uh, prosper in their business, uh, you know, feel um, not surveilled. <laughs> you know, there's a man named Todd Seavey that I've heard him on a couple of pad- podcasts, and he said that this immigration and border issues has become the single issue to define whether you're correct on the right or on the left, whether you're correct as a Republican or a Democrat. He, he says, he gives the example that you could be wrong on everything else that the right holds dear, but if you have the right position, like if you want to have an East Berlin style militarized border, they will accept you on the right, even if you're wrong on all the other issues that they hold dear and that the same holds true for the left. It has become a very, very polarizing issue. There's no more civil discourse. I'm sure you've heard the term confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. People have their viewpoint on the issue. They're not open to hearing statistics or just kind of an open discussion of the issue. They have their position on that border. However, they've arrived at the border and the immigration issues and they become very de- defiant. They won't listen to anything. And it's, I see this all the time, that it's now the single issue in politics that people don't really care. Like on the right, they don't care where you stand on other issues. They will accept you as one of theirs if you have the right position on that. And, you know, look at me. I could be considered, you know, traditional on a lot of things. You know, a lot of things that the right holds dear. Maybe I agree with some of those things. You know, I have a big family. I have nine kids, you know, I'm part of the ranching community, the business community, you know, it's like, uh, I think that the Constitution pretty well, you know, outlines the the freedoms that we as Americans hold dear. Um, But even if I was to hit the right button in different categories that, that the right holds dear, that Republicans hold dear, the fact that I'm positive about Mexico, the fact that I believe in free trade, you look at Reagan, I'm pretty similar to what Reagan said. Reagan went to the Berlin Wall and he told uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, oh, you say that you're emerging, the Soviet Union is emerging to freedom, we'll tear down this wall and prove it. He had a wall in front of him with razor wire. Reagan was against walls in the time of Reagan. Reagan was against tariffs. In the time of Reagan, you didn't need a passport as an American to come back to the US. So I think Reagan had it pretty good, the position on borders. But now, 34 years later, you have a Republican Party that has polar opposite views of what Reagan's position was on the border. And you're demonized if you don't hold this hostile view on the border. But it's just, it's kind of weird to me to see the shifting inside the right or the Republican Party on that issue, when I think they were pretty much in the Reagan era in favor of free trade and like, you know, low tariffs and the cultural and the economic interaction in Mexico. Like Reagan had friends in the ranching community right just south of us here in, in, in Nogales. He would go down there, ride horseback, and he believed in friend rela- relations. Like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington both believed friend rela- friendly relations with foreign countries, free trade, free trade with foreign countries, and entangling alliances with none. It's kind of known as the Jeffersonian doctrine of like free trade, friendly relations with foreign countries. So this whole East Berlin hostile, you know, uh, razor wire, building a wall type thing. To me, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, free enterprise, free trade Republicans aren't bothered by that. It seems like they would want the friendly relation, the the free interaction with foreign countries. But anyway, I see that as a big shift from Reagan's time 
to the day we're in now of kind of that issue as far as what Republicans, not all of them, but some of them hold dear. And the wall really is the ultimate litmus test, right? Where we saw, especially during the Trump era, we saw the 30-foot wall, then with the no climbing plate, and then draped in cyclone wire. Uh, there were all these different iterations of, of you know, bigger, sharper wall. And then we had a private wall that was built by Bannon and crew in Texas. Um, and now we have shipping container walls, which is sort of the next level or iteration of, of the wall in the rhetoric and the public sphere. You know, um, Texas has also done shipping container walls as well. So it's just I wonder, like, what will the next, what will they come up with next? Well, yeah, we're, we're so <laughs> surveilled and stuff. I kind of surprised when I hear some people talk about, there's this terminology, they'll say, Biden's wide open borders. And it's like, as if Biden has somehow opened up something that was previously closed. But I look at the border now, it is more surveilled. There's more walls. There's more uh, drones, blimps, ground monitors, more troops more border patrol agents than there ever has been in our, my life, more border barriers than there ever has been in my life, but it's become this single issue. And, you know, just it remind me of what you were saying, a little anecdote the other day, I was in a store and a woman came up to me and she says, I don't like your position on, on, on the border and on border barriers and whatnot. And she says, yes or no, a country is not a country unless it has borders. And I go, well, you know, um, 6% there's only 6% of the, the borders in the world that have any kind of a structure of fence or anything. And, you know, and I, I told her, but of course she wasn't open to this. I said, in most of the world, in Europe, you don't even know when you've crossed a national border. You just drive on the highway and you're in a new country. In South America, the same thing. In Africa and Asia, most of the world, uh, you don't know. You know, you just drive, you know, you drive from like Brazil to Paraguay. I live down there, you know, Bolivia to to Argentina, Bolivia, to Brazil, um, you know, you, the different, you know, in the countries in Europe, um, you know, you're, you're, you're traveling on a train, on a bus, on a car, you, you cross another country and you don't even know you've crossed. But this whole idea that um, you need a militarized border or you're not a real country. And I think I, that violates the principles of free trade that the, the U.S. has always, you know, held as dear. And if we became so isolationist on that trade front, um, you know, I don't think Americans know how much that we get that comes from foreign countries. Like the big industry in my town, Nogales, Arizona, is the produce industry. 60% of the fruits and vegetables consumed in the whole U.S. comes across this border. Um, people don't realize that the U.S. is in a northern climate where we don't have a year-round growing season. So when you, whether you're shopping at Kroger in Ohio or Safeway in Arizona, you know, or Winn-Dixie in the south in Georgia... The fact that you have lettuce and tomatoes and mangoes and bananas, it's because of this relationship with Mexico that all this fruit and vegetables that comes across the border. There's also the maquiladora industry in, in Mexico where, you know, what little that's left of the U.S. Auto automotive industry only exists because of these sub-assemblies sub and wiring harnesses that are produced in Mexico. And like I mentioned before, um, you know, pre-COVID, and it's getting back to this way now that now that some of the restrictions are going away, there would be $55 million a day of tourist dollars that would come in from Mexico. The, the people in Mexico like to shop in the U.S. They come here and go to Costco and Sam's Club and Walmart. They patronize 
the hospitality industry, the golf courses, the restaurants, the hotels. They like to come vacation in the U.S. and spend dollars in the U.S. They have some of those things in Mexico, like Sam's Club and Walmart, but it's different, and they just kind of like the flavor of doing their shopping in the U.S. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we turn down all this business, all the money that flows across the border, you know, just like, oh, let's shut it all down. And I actually have people telling me, we don't need Mexico. We can produce everything that we need in the U.S., but there's an economic principle called the division of labor. Everybody has an economic advantage. If you live by the ocean, if you live in a, in a tropical climate, there's things that you can produce more efficiently, like fruits, vegetables, or certain kind of fish that you can fish for that we in the U.S., in a northern cold climate, we don't necessarily have an economic advantage in that area. So it behooves people on Earth to trade with each other and interact with each other. It improves everybody's standard of living. And, you know, once again, I just don't understand people's position on that. So I think you identify politically as libertarian, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm registered as a Democrat, but on the political scale, I consider myself, I mean, in this county to get elected, you kind of just the political reality is you need to be registered as a Democrat, like uh, almost everybody in this county, Hispanic, Catholic, and Democrat. And, you know, but uh, yeah, on a political scale, you know, I don't really see myself anywhere on the political scale. I'm, I guess, what you could call a voluntarist. I believe in voluntary interaction. Everything that's voluntary, anything between human beings or business, as long as one side isn't coercing the other, forcing the other side to do anything, uh, we should honor voluntary human, you know, human interaction. So that's, if, if I had to come up with a political term to describe myself, I'd say a voluntarist. Yeah, and 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 you did a leading up to the governor's race. You did a campaign commercial with Katie Hobbs, you and, and Sheriff Nanos from from Pima yeah. County, uh, in her race for governor. And she's just recently uh, taken office as as new governor. Um, do you think Democrats have done enough to support border communities and push back against this narrative that border communities are unsafe or dangerous? No, not at all. And let me give you some examples. Um, Mark Kelly, Katie Hobbs, Kirsten Sinema, like Mark Kelly is our senator, U.S. senator, and Kirsten Sinema is U.S. senator, and um, uh, Katie Hobbs, they have all said that Title 42 should stay there. And Title 42, all it says, it's a COVID-era restriction. And all it says is that we don't do the normal processing under Title 8. So it's just precluding ever the normal processing of Title 8. It's a COVID-era restriction. Uh, and they're all in favor of that continuing. All three of my county board of supervisors here in this county, in a border county, have said that Title 42 should stay in place. And all Title 42 says, it's just a COVID policy. It just says, because of COVID, uh, the CDC enacted this policy because of COVID, that we shouldn't have the normal immigration processing for visas, for asylum claims, that's outlined under Title VIII. We shouldn't go back to normal processing. So to have some empathy for the federal officials here on the border, they don't know what they're supposed to do because they have Title VIII that has everything in it on how to deal with border issues and various immigration claims. And they're, they're not being allowed to go back to that. And I think what's happening is Democrat and Republican politicians alike are licking their finger and sticking their finger up in the air and seeing which way is the wind blowing. And they think right now, the wind is blowing in the direction of this never-ending COVID restriction to do with the border. And I also think it's disingenuous of Republicans who would 
um, who would disagree with the COVID hysteria. They would disagree with COVID restrictions, and they would say that COVID is not a serious threat. Well, why are they pushing for something that is only a COVID restriction? It's disingenuous to say, oh, you don't think there's a COVID threat, but on the border, you want Title 42 to stay, stay in place. A COVID restrictions, why don't you just call it whatever it is? I mean, if your position is that you don't want people from Mexico to come in, well, just say that. Like, for example, Title 42 has not been used on the Canadian border. Walls have not been proposed on the Canadian border. I don't want to suggest some sort of xenophobic or racist basis to what people are thinking, but it's hard to conclude anything else when you see the the differences of how this has been applied. But no, I, unfortunately, it seems even though Katie Hobbs was the less hostile towards the border communities, the least hostile of the governor candidates towards the free trade type relationship with Mexico, even she has, you know, gone on record, you know, of saying, you know, Title 42 needs to stay in place. And so, you know, uh, <laughs> now to answer your question, I don't think the Democrats have been good on that either. Yeah. And what what do you hope that the Hobbs administration will do for border communities? Do you have any, any hopes? I mean, just leave us alone and let us have the interaction that we've always had with Mexico. Like Nogales, Arizona and Nogales, Sonora, Mexico. Nogales, Sonora, Mexico is 15 times bigger than Nogales, Arizona. There's that symbiotic relationship. We both depend on each other. We depend on the tourist dollars on this side. They come across on the shy side and, like I say, patronize the restaurants, hotels, hospitality industry. And people from the U.S. go down there and do a lot of things down there. They go down there for medical work and dental things and just tourism, go down to Rocky Point and Guaymas and enjoy the beaches. Um, just let us continue that economic and cultural interaction. There's a lot of cultural events that have always gone on here, like they have what they call the Fiestas Patrias. They have both the U.S. and the Mexican traditional celebrations that are celebrated on both sides of the border. And People here are very friendly people, you know, uh, very friendly community, community, very family oriented, very soft spoken. Um, actually, a largely a lot of, you know, religious Christian Catholic influence here, too. You know, people are mostly Catholic down here on both sides of the border. So there's not the natural tension between the two communities on both sides of the border. But if you just let us interact with each other, let us, you know, have the free trade, the free cultural interaction. There's a lot of uh, families that have relatives on both sides of the border, and that's hard for them to visit with each other. So that's all I would want. I don't want an external force to come in here and change the way we do things. Just let us live the way we've always lived. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sheriff Hathaway. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with the Border Chronicle. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Melissa. I really enjoy your podcast. I enjoy all the episodes, and thanks for coming down and talking to me. Yeah, thank you. This is The Border Chronicle, reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona, and edited by me, Hannah Gaber. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a follow and share with a friend. And make sure you check the show notes to go back and hear part one with Sheriff Hathaway. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.